Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. We are here again for another Astela Around the World session. We are today with uh, Carti. Carti is a Calvin fellow. We met a couple of... Um, months before, in one of uh, the moments that uh, Kaufman proportioned us to exchange ideas. And that's why I wanted to bring Carti to our conversation here today. So Carti, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, our conversation was so, so interesting that uh, I was uh, looking for another opportunity to meet you and uh, to hear about uh, your journey. So thank you for accepting our invitation. Yeah, it is great. Yeah, great to come on this forum and uh, uh, look forward to our discussion. And we had, I agree, we had like a great chat before. And uh, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'll first thing, start with a quick introduction and uh, talk about a little bit about your bio, and then we'll move on to the question so that we can introduce you to the folks that are listening to us. So Cartier has uh, experience in early stage tech investing in US, India, Israel, and Southeast Asia in the areas of uh, mobile video, mobile internet, e-commerce, cloud analytics, semiconductors, biometrics, multi-mode user interfaces, consumer devices, and mobile social media. He also has operational experience running engineering organizations and product market roles in multiple startups. He holds a bachelor in electronics and communication from the College of Engineering, Gwindi in India, a MS in electrical engineering from the University of Michigan and an MBA at the University of Chicago. He was a managing director and VP of Qualcomm Ventures for 11 years since 2006. And he sat on the board of successful investments as Waze and Validity Sensors. Today, he focuses on deep tech and is a founder and managing partner at MFB Ventures. So, Arti, uh, you have a worldwide experience uh, with early stage tech in diverse areas. Can you tell us a bit about your early days and uh, the journey that we just uh, mentioned and talk about your experience? Yeah, no, sure thing. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a crazy journey around the world, but it all started in India. I grew up in India. Um, interestingly, I was born to uh, my parents who are both literature folks, you know, literature and liberal arts folks. My dad is a college professor in literature and my mother is a literature folk as well. And uh, but interestingly, I was not interested as much in literature and my interest even in the early days was in science and technology. So it's just interesting how even if you're surrounded by something else, you know, whatever your interest is, it finally catches on with you. I just got fascinated by science and uh, all the technological advances very early on. So that, has pro that curiosity and that exploration of this technology probably has driven me all around the world as well. So yeah, so degree in electrical engineering, but uh, 
wanted to come to the U.S. and look at uh, cutting-edge uh, companies and then uh, do some of them as well. And then that's where the journey started. And then it has gone around the world. And now I think uh, we're all connected. I think the opportunities are there everywhere. But yeah, but uh, I think the last 25 years of journey has been interesting in terms of the evolution of technology and uh, my career as well in parallel. And tell us a little bit how was your experience as an entrepreneur? I was, uh, I was very curious about it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the first company that I joined was a small startup out of Michigan. So my background is in electrical engineering. I was very interested in what's called a signal processing, which is like, you know, wireless communication, audio, video processing and those things. And then implementing those things in like, uh, architectures, whether it is a semiconductor chip or a DSP processor or a, in software. The first, one of the first things that I did was a kind of a proprietary surround system, just like Dolby surround, but it's a different proprietary system called Circle Surround. The biggest kick was when I implemented that and uh, it was implemented in some of the, I was deployed in some of the high-end equipments. So I used to go to like Best Buy and actually see that circles around and I know that my software is running there or whatever I built is running there. The kick out of something you actually build, which you can see in action, there's a lot of uh, satisfaction to that. I, a lot of my journey since then, whether it is an entrepreneur or as a VC, he's been on building things, you know, because I think there's a lot of uh, satisfaction in seeing things that you build actually in action. So I started there and then I did a couple of uh, uh, startups in the Bay Area. Uh, one is a 3G uh, chipset startup in the late 90s. So uh, some of the early uh, 3G or base stations had our, our technology there. Uh, I also did something in the what's called reconfigurable computing. So computing and connectivity were my big areas because those were the things that were getting defined in the 90s and early 2000s. I started off as an engineer, then I was an engineering leader, and then I was doing product marketing and product management as well. But it was like about 10, 12 years of uh, startup experience over three different startups. That was, uh, was very satisfying because every one of them built stuff that actually went to the market, which I can point out saying, that, hey, this particular thing has something that I built uh, there. So yeah, so that was very, very satisfying and gratifying. Yeah, That's awesome, Karthi. Before I go on to my next question, just a side note. This is not an alien speaking. This is Luli. I had a little problem with my voice, but Karthi has such an interesting story and it was so exciting to learn more about him that I could not participate in, in this session. So going on to the next question, we want to learn about your experience as VP at Qualcomm Ventures. So you were there for 11 years. What can you tell us about the experience? What was most memorable and what can you share with us from those days? Yeah, I had wireless background before. A lot of my operating experience has been in like 3G wireless, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. So after business school, I uh, wanted to do, uh, started doing venture capital, and then actually having to work with Qualcomm Ventures was like a, was like heaven sent in some sense because it was very well tied with my background in wireless. And it was a small team at the time, and I joined. It was like a three people, and the third person who joined. It's very interesting. I joined early 2006, and we were starting to see the early smartphone era. So 2006, Motorola came up with this thing called Motorola Q, which was one of the first uh, smartphones that people bought in enthusiastically. There was HTC smartphone. But then 2007, Apple iPhone came about. 2008, the App Store and the Google Android came so we saw in this whole time from when I joined this explosion of kind of wireless communication, mobile, smartphones as a, as a big sector. 
so we had the opportunity to actually live through that. So it was a, it was just a, such an interesting journey because a lot of things that we take for granted today, like for example, fingerprint sensor, that was like being proposed at the time. Hey, we should have fingerprint sensors to do authentication because we cannot type in our passwords. And one of the companies that I backed and uh, touch interfaces, location-based services because GPS had just been put in there, but you needed maps. So my investment in Waze was around that maps and navigation. So a lot of the infrastructure that we see today, during my 10 years at 10, 11 years at Qualcomm, we actually saw that slowly developing. So to be actually part of that smartphone era, because that kickstarted this mobile first and uh, mobility applications and things like that, that was, you know, I would say I'm very fortunate right? I had to be the right place at the right time, you know, my background in wireless, but then be at Qualcomm, which was the leader in kind of wireless communication, and then to see the kind of the dawn of the smartphone and this mobile first mobile computing era was very, very satisfying. So so we had a bunch of investments. We were investors in Xiaomi from, from Qualcomm, uh, you know, which is one of the leading uh, handset makers out of uh, out of China. So we were investors in that. We saw obviously investments in ways. We also saw we saw explosion of kind of wireless communication in other areas as well. So it, it was it was very interesting, I would say, because to to be part of a big explosive revolution and then be a active player in that, you know, sometimes you'll be very fortunate. So I'm, I consider myself very fortunate to be part of that. Yeah. For sure. And I have to ask you about your experience as a Waze board member, because it, it, I thought it was so incredible and I was so interested in learning about this experience. Uh, especially, I mean, what was the main challenges at that time and uh, how was the discussions around monetizing whatever they were building? So if you could talk a little bit about that, it would be awesome for us. <laughs> yeah, it was a different way of doing things because they were the first one to think about building this entire stack, whether it's maps or navigation, all through users sharing their information kind of, you know, passively and then taking the data and then building a stack. We are like, a, we were one of the early investors and uh, was on the board. There's a lot of different questions. Like what is it the best path forward? They were at, at the time pretty focused on Israel and then they had very good data in Israel. They had a lot of people using uh, their application and because of that, they had like very good data. So their data was actually better than anybody else's data. So the question was, should we monetize? Should we sell this data for total, like as a map data, right? As a map data to other providers versus do something else. And then what we found is that like trying to go monetize this early on probably was not the not necessarily the best way to optimize this thing. And then the team was trying different experiments, putting it in like Paris, putting it in like different uh, European cities. What they found was that without any effort, this is 2008 and 9, right? This was not the time where, you know, this app store ecosystem was well developed and whatnot, right? So it was a very early thing. It was a lot, lot of it was through self-discovery or referrals. They make the app available in a city. It was just uh, getting adopted very, very quickly. So that, that's when we realized that, look, we have something here catching fire. There's like this need for this application where, you know, people want a different way of figuring out navigation, figuring out uh, points of interest and figuring out how they want to drive around. So let's stop the uh, monetization part. The monetization can always come in later. Let's actually start to expand into globally and then like the strategy around US, strategy around different parts of uh, uh, Europe. Actually, Latin was one of the really interested markets as well. And then some parts of Asia as well. It was a hard decision to say, okay, let's give up monetization. 
because it was probably at the end of this web 2.0 stuff as well because this ad based economy was probably not uh, scaling up because this is 2008-9, just after the great financial crisis. And then secondly, there are people kind of uh, resistant that, hey, look, if you're doing navigation, maybe that's not the time you want to see ads. Um, so we decided, like, let's not focus on monetization. Let's not try to focus on that part. Let's try to figure out we're providing a value. Let's just try to see how much we can, how much value we can provide to the global market. And that was a, a key decision point. And, uh, Every user metric, they just kill it out of the ballpark. You know, say you'll be launching a specific market and then say, okay, let's make sure that we have this many users, type of thing. And then they'll come back in a month saying that, okay, we blew past that and whatnot. So the scaling became a big issue. Like, how do you cope up with scaling, architecture, and stuff like that? So it was just, uh, we were at the knee of the curve uh, because we've been talking to ways for like six months before we made the investment. You know, it was still like people, this is like, again, 2008, completely uh, like a smartphone based, like just you based on the users to figure out a map and navigation was still new. And then whether this can be a big asset or not was not, not everybody understood. And then most of the people still thought that mobile is not the way to monetize. There's a big article that was written about even Facebook that, you know, going into mobile is not the smartest uh, strategy, you know, how wrong they were. But the general accepted uh, opinion or norm was that it's very hard to make money off of uh, mobile. There was no big uh, asset we created. And then now we are deciding, saying that we're not even going to monetize. We're going to focus on just, just offering this for, uh, for a global thing. That was a hard decision, but it was a, it was a well-understood decision between the board and the team as well. I think that's, that's one of the best boards that I worked with, I would say. The entrepreneurs were, the founders were very um, uh, smart. They had like strong conviction, but they also took feedback. At the same time, the board members, we all kind of aligned together with the founders in terms of how we should go build this thing. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Actually, many times that doesn't happen. So this was one of the boards where we all, you know, even when we disagreed, we all figured out a way to to, to, to align the strategy. And it was like a big decision. I remember at a board meeting in uh, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, we had a board meeting right there because everybody was going to be there. We, we made some of these decisions to say, okay, let's focus on this and whatnot. It was a great journey. And then uh, we also knew that it was a unique asset, right? I think it's, it's very hard to go build a map data thing. And then we had that experience uh, from looking at other assets before. Uh, so we felt that it's a unique asset, uh, even though Google Maps was a strong player at the time, Navtech and Teleatlas were there, we felt that it's not easy to go build. And then these guys are able to build without actually spending any capital because it's all coming from this user-generated stuff. So this is a completely complementary way and a very orthogonal way of doing stuff. We knew they'll be able to build a big asset and lo and behold, within a couple of years, uh, they had a lot of efforts, and then finally they decided to be part of Google. It was a great journey, and then there was a lot of scaling issues that uh, that used to taxes that used to keep us at night. But uh, in terms of the finding the product market fit, it's just a beautiful thing when you see that, uh, especially when we've been watching for six nine months the company trying to get different steps, and then to get that uh, take off in terms of this value add to the customer. That was a very actually beautiful thing to watch. So, and uh, yeah, sometimes you. Uh, a lot of companies try different things and we invest in a lot of companies that smooth figuring of this product market fit and then the growth after that. Yeah, it, it's a great thing. Yeah. That's very interesting. I think it's also interesting the different the business models like the carpool, right? That also came out of ways and 
the ways they try to also create value in other ways. And especially in Brazil and Latin America, because I think Brazil is one of their top markets, if I believe. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of partnerships in Latin America, including Brazil. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. We would love to now learn, uh, move on to MFV Ventures. So you founded it in 2018, about three years ago now, and you focus on deep tech, right? How do you define deep tech? And tell us a little bit more about MFV. Yeah, it's a, it's again the evolution. Like you know, in mid '90s when I was doing startups, every startup was a deep tech, right? You know, every startup that raised venture capital was a deep tech because if you don't have something unique technology that you're building, you didn't get venture capital funding. You you know, but I think since the advent of internet and then mobile internet later on, you are able to build a lot of application stack on top of that, which basically means there are a lot of software companies, a lot of application companies, consumer companies that didn't have any necessarily a proprietary or a new technology in it. And they're all building a lot of values. You're, you're seeing like new assets being created in consumer and in price software. The, a lot of the venture capital actually moved there. So if you really look at it from the mid-90s when I was doing a startup to three, four years ago when I started uh, this fund, we were seeing that the focus on this hard proprietary technology was kind of marginalized. It's not necessarily... Not many people are focusing on it. Even the traditional firms have moved to more software and consumer stuff. So we felt there's a big gap, especially in early stage when you need to actually evaluate the technology to understand whether it's going to work or not, uh, whether this is the right technology for the market or not, whether this problem is an interesting problem to solve or not. And all those things require domain expertise, technology understanding, the ability to go evaluate technology. And uh, that we saw... Because those are the drivers for growth. If you really look at like what started all this computing, internet, it was all like deep technology stack that was built. And that you build applications and companies on top of that. And then if you are not investing into those underlying core technology areas, at some point it will stop because we cannot keep growing. So, And I we felt that that area requires actually special you know, understanding to invest, but you have to invest. Without that, we're going to stop at some point. So we felt a gap, and then we also felt that large industries are getting transformed. So at Qualcomm, we invested in cruise automation. One of my colleagues led the investment there. And within like a few years, it got bought by GM. Uh, and they had like a very early product. They, had, they didn't have any revenues. And then when have you seen like GM buying a no-revenue company for a billion dollars? So we saw that the early onset of big transformation of this industry is going to come from this deep tech uh, so we felt that there's a big opportunity over the next 30, 40 years of every industry actually going through this fundamental transformation, whether it is automotive, manufacturing, agriculture, and everything. And there's not enough people focusing on early stage in terms of evaluating technology. That was, we found a gap and we found an opportunity and it felt that the right time actually to go start this thing. So a few of us got together and we started this fund. And that was the genesis of this thing. I think the term deep tech was not, is, is a recent term. You know, I think people used to call us frontier tech, hard tech, core tech, proprietary tech, whatever it is. I think now we all have coalesced around this concept called deep tech. Uh, so we'll use it. But uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think uh, there is a need to actually invest in newer technologies that will drive the next uh, generation of growth. And um, that's what we focus on. That's really interesting. And uh, my next question comes to uh, reading one of your articles. Uh, I saw a term that you mentioned, it's a technology market fit. And uh, we as a SaaS and traditional tech investors think about a product market fit. 
it would be very interesting for us that is not uh, very literate on the deep tech world to understand a bit of uh, what is the difference between product market fit and technology market fit. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, the deep tech companies have multiple things that, uh, multiple stuff that you need to go solve. Obviously, you got to find out whether there is a big market need for a set product. So that's the product market fit. But oftentimes, you're coming up with proprietary new technology in a deep tech company. So to make sure that that's the right technology for that particular problem that you're solving is an important question to ask. Because there's a lot of times you'll come up with the technology and then you realize that for the problem that you're solving, this technology doesn't have all the capabilities or it's not ready. Right? It's not. It's, it's still very risky, meaning that it still not doesn't work. It works only in the lab or it doesn't perform to the same performance metrics that is required, whether it's very expensive or it's too bulky or it's, uh, uh, it's too power hungry or it's, it's not capable. So, so it's very important for a deep tech uh, come startup to actually think both. You know, is the problem that I'm solving worth solving? Because that's a product market fit. If I come up with a product whether it's a software or a hardware product, will people buy? And then to say that, hey, whatever technology I think I have because of whether it came from a corporate lab or a university lab or a, or a government lab or even like experienced entrepreneurs coming up with this technology, you got to figure out whether this is the right technology or not. So, so this is one of the myths on that why deep tech companies take a longer time. It's, it's mainly because a lot of teams fumble with that. It's like many of these uh, teams come up with the first hammer and then they, they're looking for nails to go Go, go hit, right? So they need to be smarter about it. And it is an additional challenge. Whereas in a software or a consumer, the technology itself is not necessarily the unique thing. So you can very quickly whip up something and then figure out is this the right product or not. And then you can just keep iterating. Whereas here, because you you have proprietary technology, you have to first actually make sure that the technology that you are building is the right one for the market or not. So it adds a layer of complexity. So sometimes the companies seem to take longer, the deep tech companies, and then seem to take more time and more capital because of that. But not always the case. Good entrepreneurs, smart entrepreneurs actually are aware of this thing. So they, they focus on it uh, early on to make sure that the technology is the right one and the problem is worth solving. Yeah, but that's a key additional factor to look at in a deep tech startup. And uh, especially in the early stages, because you still don't know whether the technology will work, and then is the technology the right one for the product, and then is the product the right one that the market wants. So there's like multiple layers of complexity you need to manage, which makes it interesting as well, but which also makes it more complex to evaluate the early stage uh, deep tech startup. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a one challenge after the, the other. And that's interesting because uh, then you mentioned about product market fit, technology market fit, and the risks um, related to uh, proof of concept, let's say. And what you mean is that not necessarily it will take longer to mature. What are the key elements? Uh, you mentioned the team, but anything else that could be key for um, deep tech uh, startup to mature faster than the others or similar pace to what a regular tech business does? I mean, Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And uh, it's an important question as well. And that's one of the things that we focus on. So one of the things that we focus on is what's called as near-term commercialization, right? So if you're not interested in nice projects, right? nice like a lab projects or lab experiments, that's not what we're focused on, right? So one of the backgrounds that me and my partners have is all building stuff that can be taken to markets, which means 
we are looking at near term commercialization right so we whenever we look at something we basically ask the hard question can this be commercialized in the next 5 years right because we are a 10 year fund and then we say can this be commercialized in 5 years and then if not then maybe that's not the right one and and it it's okay because a lot of people sometimes complain that oh venture capital is very short term focused but I, i actually argue the other way around the biggest gap between a lot of lab research and commercialization is this early productization part so if you cannot commercialize in the next 5 years then i think this needs to be in the lab more right so and i think availability of capital to take this thing which is lab proven science proven and then to get to commercialization which is where the venture capital was actually started in the 70s and 60s you know at the time and us actually us and now every other geography is actually getting better and better at that and that gap is the biggest gap so there are a lot of universities that will if you go to different parts of the world will say man i we done this bunch of research but we have no way to take this to commercialization because you know we don't have the tools you don't have the funding and uh, what not so i still think that being able to focus on things that get me commercialized in the next 5 years is still the right thing so that's what one of the things that we focus on we focus on things that can be commercialized so we ask the harder question is the market finally ready is the problem stringent enough or is the problem important enough that it's going to be worth solving in the next 5 years or is it going to be it's not necessarily a high priority problem at this point those gives us the lens and then the discipline so there's a lot of companies that we look at and say look this is a little too early for us because we don't think the commercialization will happen in the next few years and then there are times we keep monitoring that area and then we jump in saying that hey look i think we are seeing enough indicators and then the problem is enough important at this point and the technology is mature enough that this is the right thing to go right so there are uh, there are cases you know where for example humanoid robots i think uh, is one of the investments we made we've been looking at this area even when i was in polcom for a while but it seemed always like a science project an interesting experiment where is the real use case but we saw that changing quite a bit and that's why we made like an investment in the last few years so when we look at we obviously look at people that understand the same can we find the right technology market fit product market fit very actively but we also look at things that are near term commercializable and then second is we all third is that we also want to look for things that don't have like science risks you know meaning that it's not even proven out in the lab the basic science is not proven we don't take that so like that needs to be in the lab it's a lab research uh, issue so we we look for things that are proven out in the lab proven out in science and where the next step is required is the engineering to commercialize it engineering to take it to market that engineering technology risk will take we specifically do not take science risk you know if something you don't know the biology is proven out or the physics is proven out or the chemistry is proven out we let them be in the lab we figure it out and then the engineering to proven science to market that's the risk we take and that discipline helps us to see look at companies that that will be near term commercializable and work on so yeah so those are our two additional things uh, that we look for to make sure that whatever we invest in can be commercialized over the next few years that's awesome that's really interesting and when you think about uh, the curve of uh, technology evolution/revolution Do you consider the deep tech companies meaning quantum semiconductors biotech advanced materials do you see them on a different industrial era i mean is deep tech something that is related to a, a different uh, industrial revolution and then 
whenever it becomes mainstream, we'll have another layer of uh, deep tech and, and then we go. I mean, is that we consider the revolution of uh, technology? It's a good point. And it's, it's one of the essence of understanding deep tech. So deep tech is basically the new technology that's pushing this whole ecosystem forward. But whatever is considered new today is not going to be new in a, in a few years because it's now well understood and proven out. So for example, you know, in 2002, we were working on like Wi-Fi because at the time that standard was getting formed. And then you know, how can you build actually Wi-Fi to do this local area network? At the time, it was deep tech because it was a newer a newer thing to figure out the communication. Today, it's not. Today it's a commodity. You can get it for like a $1 chip or $2 chip for, to do Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi is now, nobody even think of it as a technology. It's like undisturbed. Right? So uh, same thing with uh, 3G communications, uh, mobile communication. Every te- uh, technology starts off a new area, starts off as deep tech. And where you push this envelope forward, actually build a commercializable platform where you can actually build the assets on. And then it becomes reasonably commonplace where people can use it. And then you have to move to the next level, becomes the next layer of deep tech. So deep tech is always in a transitional thing. So you know, Google, when they started, is a deep tech because you know they were coming up with a new way of algorithm to transfer, to find all the web pages, kind of link them, figure out intelligence from them. So that was it. when when they proposed that, or when they when they built a search engine around that, that was deep tech because it was a new algorithm that came out of their research in Stanford. But then after that, how do you build business on top of okay, I can do the search and then base search based monetization and all those things? Then it becomes regular software business or regular, it's like, okay, here here are my customers, potential customers, here is the willingness to pay and all those things. Now, that part is not the deep tech. Now it's like, okay, what is the next level? Right? So uh, same thing with AI, like, you know, the recent example, three, four years ago, you know, deep learning and uh, uh, some of the application of building AI models and using AI to solve some of the problems was deep tech because it was new, novel to understand. And then every one of these, Problems need to be solved differently. And then there was a lot of domain knowledge to be learned. But today, for some of the basic stuff, AI has become almost, there's enough stuff today, enough understanding today that by using AI, for example, some of the problems is not considered deep tech anymore. Applied AI today, I would not call it as deep tech unless you're pushing things forward in AI. You know, there are like transformers, graph, and other networks. That is deep tech. But okay, I'm using just the ML model to do some prediction or I'm using the deep learning to do some recognition of images and whatnot. We don't call it as deep tech anymore. That's in a short three, four years, right? I'm sure so similarly, right? Like in today, quantum computing is like a deep tech because to, how do you build a quantum computer? It's still a hard enough problem to actually commercialize it. But I'm sure in five, seven, 10 years, that will be like taken for granted. It's like, okay, all right, yeah, quantum computer, yeah, that's there. Like, okay, what else is next type of thing? So deep tech is always this in motion where a newer technology becomes commercialized, commoditized, commonplace, and then you move to the next step. So that's a very good point. I think that's a point sometimes people uh, fail to uh, realize. So thanks for bringing that up. I think it's an important point to understand deep tech because it's always evolving. Well, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> so you already gave us a sneak peek about our next question. You were speaking about a company that you invested on humanoids, right? On robot humanoids. And um, is that Agility Robotics? We took a peek at it and we thought it was so interesting. And if you can dive a little bit deeper and tell us a little bit more about Agility, I think our audience would love that. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, it's a different type of robot. Most of the robots that you see today, whether it is autonomous vehicles or 
robots in warehouses and factories. They're all what's called as wheeled robots. They have wheels, like three wheels, four wheels, and then uh, they have cameras and they basically uh, use well-constrained spaces or they recognize what's there and then just move around using wheels. It is There are a lot of advantages there, but there are some drawbacks as well. That's not the way actually we move around. We don't use wheels or we don't use just basically use on computer vision to move, right? We can actually close our eyes and walk around, move around most of the way uh, because we use, like all animals and us, we, use, we actually move around differently, right? So the humanoid robot, the bipedal robot is trying to mimic more of that. You know, how do you move in like unstructured spaces? How do you move, which is not necessarily a smooth floor, you know, you feel bumps here and there, maybe a few things you have to cross over type of things and work along with other, um, you know, other robots and other people as well. And it's a very hard thing to do. So we have looked at other companies in the past where it's just a building something sustainable, building something that can actually do a bunch of tasks. It's very hard to do. Uh, so when we looked at agility, one of the things that we really liked immediately is that uh, CTO Jonathan has been working on this area for like 15 years. You know, he, that was his PhD thesis in Carnegie Mellon. And then he became a professor in uh, Oregon State where he continued that research. And then so the, the company kind of was born out of that research that he has been doing for 15 years. So he had this long understanding of how this needs to be built. And then what we felt on the other side was that the first generation of automation in factories and warehouses was starting to happen, you know, uh, uh, Amazon bought Kiva, and then uh, since then, there has been a lot of automation in factories and uh, uh, warehouses. But we're getting to a limit on how much you can automate because they all are in constrained spaces where you can move things around. But in unstructured spaces, also un kind of unstructured tasks, still the robots cannot do. And you need to complement with whatever being deployed, which is the wheel robots for a bunch of these uh, structured spaces. An unstructured, uh, unstructured space, we need like a humanoid type of a robot which can work in these environments. So we saw that not necessarily to replace labor, but more about productivity enhancement. Right? Like I think like in the last couple of years, one of the things this COVID has accelerated is also that, you know, we're all comfortable now ordering online. We're all comfortable, you know, doing these things remotely, which basically means a lot more factory automation is required, a lot more warehouse automation is required to meet productivity expectations. It's not to replace anybody. It's just that, to, to get to that next level from uh, satisfying 100,000 orders a minute to million orders a minute, you can't just deploy more people. You have to actually automate. And then, so there is the need for automation coming from kind of uh, adoption of more of this technology, more of these use cases as well. So we saw a demand coming up where you have to need automation. And then that's complementary to the automation that they're currently having, which is the real robots. And then a team that knows this space inside out, and this has been their life journey, if you will, and that was the perfect fit for us. So when, when we invested, we, we still wasn't weren't sure that what the when the commercialization will be at scale and whatnot. But in the last eighteen months since we have invested, they have done really, really well. Right? But I think when we look at it uh, from an investment perspective, that's how we typically look for. We look at somebody who has a deep insight and solving in a, in a very, very different way, unique way, sustainable way, scalable way. And then a market problem that's evolving, right? It's like, uh, I, because I think it has to match in terms of why now we want to deploy it. And this is one of the fits where we are seeing the factory automation, warehouse automation going up in one side, and then a team that understands this robot and there's a need for such type of robots to complement other robots. So, so yeah, so that is how we, we made the investment. And uh, yeah, they're very unique. And then 
I think today humanoid robots is a lot in mainstream discussion because Elon Musk talked about it in the Tesla AI day. But I think uh, it, it's long due in terms of uh, if you look at the experienced people in the industry, they know that you need like a humanoid type of robot to complement the real robot. So yeah, so we're very excited about the investment and they've done well. But I think a lot of our investment strategies go like this, you know, trying to figure out these two sides of uh, a technology. And Katchit, you mentioned about the concerns about robots um, replacing humans and, and this kind of things. And it's a, whenever we think about a new industrial revolution, this kind of question comes into mind because it shifts a little bit uh, the demand for skills of uh, human beings. My question is, uh, are there any aspects of uh, the deep tech evolution that concerns you in terms of uh, ethical issues and uh and how do you see your role as an investor concerning these issues? Yeah, it's an important point. So I think like, you know, what are we trying to replace is an important question, right? Like, you know, what are we trying to automate is an important question. Uh, so I come from, a, you know, University of Chicago School of Thought, which is a little more lazy fair, which is, which is like, you know, just because, for example, there's a technology trend evolving and just because bunch of us decide not to invest, it's not going to stop evolving, right? I think, you know, people are going to hack, people are going to do, uh, keep iterating on things. So things that are going to evolve is going to evolve. So I think it's actually better to to accept that, acknowledge that, and then figure out, okay, how we should manage that rather than try to have a binary view on things. And then we have seen this again and again, right? Like, and I sit in conversations when I was young, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, where, you know, people passionately argue how computerization is going to kill labor, uh, which it didn't happen, right? Which actually uh, enabled more uh, uh, middle class for moment from lower class to middle class. And in fact, emerging markets moved up primarily because of technology, right? So we had to always acknowledge that as well, because sometimes we don't know. So we try to figure, we try to look at this in a way that um, not try to be restrained, putting a restraint or having a binary view on some of these things. But what we look for is stuff that is more for productivity improvement, where some of these things, even by throwing more people at it, it won't solve the problem. So that even like, for example, services, uh, enterprise services, people are seeing this limit now in India and, uh, and a few other emerging markets, like services economy, software services economy was the one that became big. But they are also hitting a limit now. If a more bigger problem or a complex problem comes in, they can't solve it by just putting more people in it. So they have to actually do automation or not. So we, we try to look for things that try to push the whole thing forward instead of a zero-sum stuff, right? So whenever we look at a technology, that's one of the things that we look for. Is it, is it like zero-sum, you know, is it replace one from another, or is it fundamentally moving that forward? But with the, with the knowledge being actually uh, intellectually honest that, Oftentimes, we don't know as well. And then if something is happening, like a dam is breaking and it's flooding, uh, just because we say that, hey, this, is not, this, this shall not happen, it won't, it, it, will, it won't happen. Cannot assume that it. it's going to happen. It's better to basically manage that rather than trying to assume it's going to go in this one way. And then a good example is AI. Like three, four years ago, all the discussions, all the panels I used to sit in is that this is going to replace stuff. Is this going to be, uh, you know, replace human beings? And just knowing the technology, I know it's not like, you know, our we are wired very differently from these machines. We, they're optimized for something else. But more importantly, right, like now this whole concept of AI ops and ML ops, which is actually, AI has not replaced. It has actually created more job opportunities for newer types of people, right? Like where were AI ops, where are ML ops? Today, companies and companies are building these areas, right? So we have to be honest about that as well. A lot of times, these actually are not zero sum. You know, there's like shifting a few things here and there, but uh, it actually 
brings about more opportunities and newer opportunities. So that's the way philosophically we look at it. We, we kind of take a license for a stand. At the same time, when we invest, we look for things that are more, lot less zero sum and more on kind of uh, positive things. But then we also should be cognizant of how things have evolved, including the recent example of AI, right? So, yeah. That's good to know. It's a relief <laughs> to hear that from you. Karthi, we would like to know what do you think are the main ecosystems that create the top deep tech companies? What are the characteristics of these ecosystems that favor the creation of these kind of companies and thesis? And what do you think is the government's role in this? Government has a big role because I think a lot of people do not understand that because a lot of the companies, right, you know, come from university research and university research are all funded by governments, right? So, so if you look at deep tech, it comes from either some labs whether that might be a university research lab or a government research lab or corporate research lab. It comes from a lab where they've been working on something. Hey, this interesting idea, why don't we commercialize it? So that's one. The other is like, you know, the experience to folks looking at a problem and saying that why can't we solve by combining these two technologies and then making some modification and uh, applying this thing, right? So the whole concept of autonomous vehicles is like that. Like, you know, they saw AI coming up, they saw uh, vision sensors becoming cheaper and cheaper. And said, okay, what can we put together for autonomy, right? It comes from one of these pathways. Ecosystem that has these pathways will actually always produce deep tech. So traditionally it has been either university or government research. So, which is why we see that in, coming out of uh, university labs and you know, around the world, but also, you know, corporate as well, which the corporate research is probably a lot more in the Western developed world where there's a bunch of research from Intel or Qualcomm or Apple that ultimately gets spun out and uh, form new companies as well. Those are essential parts to it. The one that I will, it's uh, never underestimated, it should be underestimated is this early stage venture capital, right? I think uh, the biggest chasm that I talked about is that Something that's lab proven to take to commercialization. That's the biggest gap, right? So, like, so availability of capital in that is important. And then the way the venture capital works, you're, you guys are VCs as well. The reason things work is because of the variety of experiments happening, right? If only one experiment happens, I don't think the ecosystem moves forward. If 20 experiments happen, maybe 19 will fail. But for that one to succeed, you have to have 20 experiments, right? So, but the availability of venture capital is the one that helps enable those different experiments, right? And you need to have an environment where multiple experiments can be done. US has been very good at that. And then more and more geographies now understand that, saying that like, you have to have these experiments, which means like, you should be willing to fail with some of the capital. But the one that will succeed will actually move the whole industry forward and will make up for all these things. So this availability of this capital, uh, but also uh, management, uh, commercial early adopter commercialization, all those things are important as well. So the first thing is labs, second is capital, third is like this availability of management and then really go to market. Somebody will say, okay, all right, it's a new product. I'll try it out. We'll see if it works and that will give me a competitive advantage if this works and the early adopter type of a thing. So that as well. So all these combinations should work together. So that's why some markets are ahead of others. And the role of government to answer your question because you got to do a lot of these experiments at the lab to figure out, hey, this is lab proven now, right? Like if you think about venture capital, early stage venture capital is an experiment where, you know, one in 10 succeed. In the lab thing, only like one in a few hundred succeeds, which basically means you need to be able to do a bunch of different researches and whatnot. And that has to come from, you know, either foundations or government and government is better positioned to play that. And then US has done that very well because a lot of the US university research is funded by the government. 
And then even though, you know, they get commercialized and, uh, you know, become companies, we can never underestimate the role the governments have, government has played, right? So I, I think, I think it's, a, it's a complex environment, but I think there's a role for everybody. Well, that's interesting. And uh, thinking about the venture ecosystem, then you mentioned the government. What are the alternatives a, an entrepreneur uh, has uh, whenever they are looking for um, funding and uh, what kind of uh, financial instruments that uh, could make sense to finance deep tech as well? Yeah, it depends on different markets. Uh, and in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, non-dilutive research funding available from different forms of the governmental organizations. So people apply for SBIR and different grants. These are all things that provide some form of non-dilutive funding. Depending on the markets, you know, some markets have it well uh, set up. For example, Israel has a, you know office of the chief scientist uh, from the government set up to do this. More and more countries are doing that as well. So those are another form of uh, getting some non-dilutive capital to get get your uh, get your product going. You know, there's obviously you can build a product and then get your customer to finance it. But in deep tech, that's probably a little hard because there is a big product development ramp before you can actually start monetizing. Whereas in software companies, even a seed stage company, I when I talk to them, they already have customers and. Even if it's not, they're not getting revenues, they're already in the early throws of that. Whereas in deep tech, there is a product development phase. The one other thing that I've seen in the US is that find an early customer who will actually finance the product as well, like an NRE financing as well, for some exclusive relationships uh, and whatnot. Sometimes it can be a death trap because you know, you're know you then uh, tied to the customer, but there are good uh, symbiotic relationships where your early customer could finance your uh, product development as well. Uh, so those are a few other ways to do it. But I think uh, having good venture capital, early stage, seed stage venture capital mechanism, whether it's an accelerators or seed funds is important for, for deep tech, especially because there is a definitive product development stage before you can start actually seeing traction, validation and revenues. You also have a post uh, mentioning about the sparks, right? Uh, and it was quite uh, interesting as the as an alternative. Yeah, for later stages. Yeah, I agree. So for later stages, that's one thing that has come up in the last few years. It's been there for a while, but it is it's definitely an ideal fit for deep tech startups where uh, later stage financing now can be done through public market through SPACs and then public market is hungry for newer assets. And then deep, deep tech is a very good fit for SPAC because you have the ability to kind of forecast what's going to come up provide a narrative whereas most of the company when you go ipo you cannot talk about the future you can talk only about your past i think given the appetite for this asset class uh, new asset classes coming into the market and then deep tech an ideal fit where you need to raise capital at the same time you can provide a narrative how things could change it's an ideal fit and uh, and if you look at the, the performance of uh, SPACs, you'll, you'll see that actually the deep tech SPACs are done actually better than any other SPAC because they are the ones that are saying that hey, here's where the where we believe in, and then they're able to show. Whereas in other cases, it's probably a, the private market is still very reasonably efficient for you to raise capital. So they are going to public markets for maybe a premium, and then later on figuring that it's not happening. Whereas deep tech companies, uh, they're done well after going back. So that's another maybe a proof point that you know uh, it's a good fit for deep tech. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, we are heading to the end of our conversation and uh, we normally do some uh, philosophical questions about uh, how you see the future and uh, 
how you would expect innovation to address uh, our main uh, issues as uh, as human beings. So if you could uh, tell us uh, how optimistic you are in terms of uh, the future and uh, in our lives as uh, human beings and uh, and being a deep tech can probably give us a, a different perspective of how we can dream that uh, we will create the solutions we need for sustainability and addressing the problems that we now have. I mean, how... How do you see all of this? And if in any way your vision about uh, how humanity will be sustainable or not is a driver for your investment decisions? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm actually very optimistic because I think the way we will solve some of these bigger issues around sustainability, climate change and resources, sustainable resources is going to be through technology. Right? I think that's the way we're going to evolve. And today, the cost of doing these experiments are the lowest. Capital is probably uh, in some parts of the country versus, or some parts of the world versus other parts of the world is different. But in general, the willingness to actually go try different things out and the availability of capital is probably is the best I've seen in my in my years of experience. And and then the more different variety of experiments that are being that are happening is just unbelievable. They were not even possible a few years ago. So I, we invested around this whole concept of clean tech earlier than 10 years ago. I think compared to that, what we are seeing today about sustainability, about sustainable sources of either food or around energy, I'm like very, very optimistic about the type of experiments that are happening. Not every experiment would succeed, but like we said, you need to have a variety and diverse set of experiments. And um, so uh, I think I'm very optimistic that a bunch of solutions are going to come about which will drive the humanity forward in terms of solving some of these things. Everybody has to play their role. Technology will play the role, but we also have to play our role. But I think, uh, so I'm actually very optimistic uh, about that as well. I think longer term, what I see is that um, I think in this tech-driven world is going to be the one that keeps going to keep solving these things. And then what in the last few years, what we're seeing also is this concept of applying computer science, AI, and then electrical engineering, computer vision, and other technologies to actually better find drugs for drug discovery, drug uh, adoption, personalization, and things like that, which was not possible until a few years ago. And then even today, we are very early on, very, very, very early in the process. So every one of these things that we're going to keep addressing through technology, and then we're going to, we will, we will put solutions together and then move this ecosystem forward and move the humanity forward. So I'm actually very optimistic. Just based on the number of experiments that are happening, that I'm like just wowed by the number of experiments that are happening. So yeah, so I'm pretty bullish in terms of how we will solve it. I think we all have responsibility as human beings as well. But then we also, the way we're going to come out of this is not necessarily top down in terms of just policy, but also through innovation coming from bottom up through technology. Because I think that it has to be both. Sometimes you often focus around just the policy part of it, but it also going to come through this technology that keeps coming up in the labs and coming up in experiments. So, so I'm very bullish on that. And then all these are areas of focus, you know, computational biology, you know, trying to find drug discovery using AI, computer science and computer vision. That's an area of focus for our investment. Yeah, sustainable energy, sustainable uh, food product, all those things are areas of focus for us as well. We did a uh, kind of electrification in our first fund and then and going forward, we'll go and look at more of those areas as well. So as a fund, we are interested in technologies that will drive these things, but then we're very focused on commercialization as well. So uh, there are some of the technologies we'll pass for now, but then we, we want to take some of these technologies that can be commercialized in the next decade. But overall, we're very bullish, optimistic in the what's happening in the ecosystem and uh, where humanity is going and then our role in it. 
you want to be you want to be supporting entrepreneurs that drive this big change right so yeah Karthik, that's awesome and just to finalize our conversation if you could share with us something that you're most excited about and something that you're most scared about most excited about i think i'm most excited about quantum computing the applications of that because it's just a nascent area and then the type of problems it can solve is just mind blowing so it's very we invested in you know in a quantum computing hardware company called Psyquantum, but that's just the starting point right i think there's a lot of how do you use this quantum computer to go solve these problems it's very exciting and then uh, some of the areas that could be applied it's very very exciting and uh, uh, liberating if you will what am i scared of i'm not scared of anything specific what i'll tell you is that um, i've been always been fascinated about technology so every every technology that come up i want to at least get to understand it uh, i think i'm getting to a point where there are so many technologies coming up and some of them i probably my lifetime won't be able to understand because there are so many different things that are evolving so it's maybe a sign of my age or it's maybe a sign of how technology is like you know different areas are exploding and uh, exponentially evolving that i say any single human we probably won't have a handle on what is happening and uh, sometimes that the unlimited uh, potential that we see is a, is a little bit scary but i think more importantly i now starting to come to my reconcile that okay you know what there are some i'm not going to be able to understand at all because that's just uh, way out there type of a thing or it is beyond my grasp of thing uh, so yeah so that's probably what uh, you know it's like uh, understanding your limitation i guess uh, because the just technology just keeps changing so much Wonderful. Thank you so much, Karchi. It was uh, such a nice conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you for having well, me. We'll definitely keep in touch. I mean, how is your uh, fund doing? Are you are you fundraising a new one? How in the VC cycle you are currently? Yeah. So yeah, since we talked, uh, so we just officially launched our fund two month ago. So we have good update in the fund. We have like the Quantum is a unicorn now. And um, we have a couple more, like six companies that have done big markups and whatnot. So, so we're launching our fund too. It's a $100 million fund. All our existing LPs are coming back. So we're starting our first close with this year. So, so right now we're in fundraising more. So, so I was going to reach out to you after this as well in terms of, uh, you know, how some of the things that we can work together as well. But uh, yeah, I think there's more areas that we can do and more companies we can do. So I think the fund one, we have like only one more investment we can make. Uh, so we're just launching or we just launched our fund too. Uh, but yeah, uh, but it's been going well. And uh, yeah, we should talk separately on that as well. Excellent. No, we we'll, we'll certainly will. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being yeah, here. Thank you for yeah. having me. It was a great conversation. And I, when I saw the question, that was very, it was very liberating because it was, uh, it was very, uh, it touched on several points as well. So thank you for that. And then you guys have done a lot of work to understand my background as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, you know, so the questions are very, very well thought out. I have not been on another podcast where the questions have been so well thought out. So oh, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. So I, I really, really mean that because you've done so much work uh, to come up with the right set of uh, topics to discuss. So I really appreciate that. I was very impressed when I saw the questions. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, actually. And uh, we'll keep in touch because we'll, we'll okay. talk about this fundraising and see if uh, our families will be interested on deep tech and uh, sure thing. deeper uh, learning on what you're doing. So that's going to be sure thing. Yeah. <laughs> good job. Good meeting you, Carolina. So thanks for this. I look forward to this being published as well. Yeah, yeah we'll let you know in, in advance. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>